We are glad you're here with us today. We're going to continue our series on the Gospel of Mark this morning. We've been doing this for a minute, right? <laughs> but we are nearing the end of the book, and so it's been an awesome journey. We talk about this every week as we kind of get into the text. And uh, I want to start this morning a- asking a question, because this series has been different maybe uh, than most that, that we've done. I mean, because first of all, we've gone verse by verse through the Bible. But secondly, we've come to this profound moment I, I was out talking to people this week. I kind of process things out loud. That's kind of how I work. And I was, I was telling people whenever I've been speaking through Mark, it's been so much fun. The gospel is so packed with information. Like, if you've not read the gospel of Mark, can I just encourage you to read the gospel of Mark? Like, if, if you have a short attention span and that's all you're going to hear today, just, just maybe that's what you need to hear today. Just go home, read the gospel of Mark. You can read it like an hour and a half, two hours. I'm a pretty slow reader. It takes me about like three, maybe four hours to read it. But, but you can get through it pretty quickly. It's 16 chapters. It's the shortest gospel. Uh, Maybe one of the shortest books in the New Testament, although there's one really, really short one. <laughs> but it's easy to get in there and just kind of hear the story of Jesus. You don't have to have every answer, every detail, uh, but hear the story of Jesus. But I was telling a friend of mine, we were talking about preaching through this, and he's also a fellow preacher, and I was saying, you know, it's funny because there are things that I can kind of shout about as a pastor, as a preacher. I can just get really excited and demand kind of like, hey, we should get excited about this because it's not inherently exciting. But man, when you get around the crucifixion of Jesus... It is so profound that I find myself just pulling off the text and going, that is enough. Like, not that I don't get excited about Jesus' death and resurrection. I do, right? That's what saves us. But this, it's so profound that if we can't grasp that very basic thing, if we can't see that in the story of the Gospel of Mark, we started off kind of hearing of this Jesus coming up and making disciples and doing miracles and all this stuff, but if we can't see that here at this moment that there's this profound thing that God is doing, I don't think we're paying attention. Like, it's the whole point. (laughs) All the stuff that we think Jesus is cool for, this is the point of what Jesus is made for. Crazy. So I find myself kind of pulling off uh, of the text, and, and I wanted to, you know, just admit that as we, as we get into the Word today, um, just to let the text speak for itself. It's almost too, too much to behold. Some of the things we heard last week, it's almost too much to really think about the way Jesus was treated before He went to the cross. Matter of fact, many times in our own life, we'll feel like we got kicked in the mouth, you know. We'll feel like somebody's been unkind to us said something. I've even seen people spit on people before, and that to me, I've said, whew, that's like the ultimate insult. You know, I think that'd be like a knee-jerk face slap as my spit. Don't spit on me, by the way. I don't want to test that theory out, but I think I'll just instinctively slap somebody who spit on me, you know. And, And to hear the way he was treated by people who were supposedly religious, and then to hear how he's treated by people who were supposedly put, set in authority by his father, um, or who have been, you know, not supposedly, who are set in place of authority by his father, but who believe, supposedly, they have real power. Um, and to see him, oh, listen, mocked and, and artificially worshipped. I mean, come on, that should drink some conviction. Are we really worshipping God with our lives? Or are we just showing up and, and pretending to worship Jesus, but we don't really care? Come on. So, so today, we're kind of coming right back into that place in the text. I want to ask you the question, though. I started that way. Who are you willing to die for? That's my question. Who are you willing to die for? 
I know we always like think about like what well, we'd be the hero. We love hero movies because we would be the hero. We would jump in front of the bullet. We would we would make the the final you know uh, saving shot. We would we would do that thing. We would defeat the terrorists. We would we would be the heroes. But who are you willing uh, to die for? Lest you think that giving your life for something is is insignificant, um, all the news coming out of Charlottesville has been profound because someone gave their life for a cause. And, and wherever you stand on that issue, someone died for a cause. And much of the lament I would say is because they would say it wasn't worth it. People were saying maybe I, I should stay home because it, it might not be worth it to give my life. Really. In your life, right now, who would you be willing to die for? I would like to say, what would you be willing to die for? But boy, that, that's kind of goofy, isn't it? To, to die for a thing. Maybe a person, but a thing? Oof. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to pray as we enter into the Word. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn, though, first so we can get the book open. Matthew, or Mark, chapter 15, verse 25. We're going to start there. We'll see where we end up today. Mark 15, this one, 712 of the Bibles in the chair rows, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning. I just want to enter into the text. I, I just want to, with that prayer in our heart, who, who are you willing to die for in your life? All right, pray with me as we enter the Word. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. We sang the words, who you are and who we are. We acknowledge that we are sinners, that we are saved by grace, and that this is too much for us to behold, I mean, to truly grasp. And Father, we know that we've done nothing to warrant your attention or salvation, that we have no righteousness of our own, but we are utterly dependent on you. That's true for wisdom, Father, today. If anything is going to change us, it won't be us. If anything's going to transform our minds, it won't be our own thinking. So, Father, we desperately ask you that you would come to us today through your word, that we could experience you in ways we never have before, just so we can be changed by you, and so we can become more like you. And Lord, we confess that this work is a work of your Holy Spirit and not under our power. And so we ask you to um, be with us in this way, to deliver us from our broken humanity and give us glimpses of your eternal measure, of your eternal work. We don't deserve it, but we want it. We ask you for it. Do this work today, we would ask, in a powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Whew. In the name of Jesus. Here we go. All right, so we're going to pick up where we, where we stopped. That is wrong, by the way. If this is 21, we're not going to start in 21. We're going to start in 20. Let's find out where we're going to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. 25. 25. That's where we want to get to. Sorry about that. 25, verse 25. It was the, we covered this last week, by the way, so we're kind of overlapping just a couple verses. I think it's important. It was the third hour when they crucified Jesus. The written notice that was hung against him read like this, the king of the Jews. So I think it's important that we, we stop 
we stopped there last week, but I think it's important we start where we stopped, right? That the reality is that in this moment, that the mocking, the spitting, the ridicule, the beatings, the, the bludgeoning to the point he couldn't carry a cross is over, and he is now hung on a cross in the third hour. The third hour would be about nine in the morning, right? Um, because of the way the different, they were tracking time differently-ish, um, nine in the morning-ish, but it was definitely morning when he was hung on the cross on this Friday. And the written notice that was hung over his head said, the king of the Jews. And you'll know there's a controversy about that. We talked about that plenty last week. So in 27, we're going to continue on now. They crucified two thieves or two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. I'm going to read on a little bit more and then we're going to talk about this. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked Jesus among themselves. And he said, he, they said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified along with him heaped insults onto him. You should hear some things there that are familiar uh, this question of tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days. You remember? That was the false accusation against Jesus that he said he would literally destroy a literal temple and literally rebuild it in three days. What, a, a temple made with human hands and the rebuilding one was not made with human hands. L literally, that's the, the false accusation against Jesus. But we, we, we see these three groups of people who, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, begin to mock and ridicule Jesus. I can't tell you, I know for a fact, what the habits of the people were when they would see someone crucified. I can't imagine, I cannot imagine, I know we, we, we get into some weird stuff in our culture, but I can't imagine you would not want to avert your eyes from a cross. That you wouldn't want to look away. You wouldn't want to think, oh, I could be up there. Especially if you're being ruled over as they were being ruled over by the civil authorities that were irrational in who they killed. But here we have this testimony of people who were passing by and they were ridiculing Jesus because he had made promises that he could not keep. Oh, this is the great and mighty powerful Jesus. This is the one. Remember his condition at this point. He must have been pathetic, weak, defeated, and broken. And they took the opportunity to mock and ridicule, demeaning the things that he said he would do. By the way, let's just listen to that. That if you destroy this temple made with human hands in three days, I will raise a temple not made with human hands. Foreshadowing, right? the man, oh come on, Jesus Christ. All week as I've been preparing this, by the way, God loved John Mark McMillan. He's a singer-songwriter. There's that song we sing sometimes, you know, it goes, oh, 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 You know that song, right? The man, Jesus Christ, laid death in his grave. What, what, a, what a moment here where, where passerbys or ridiculing Jesus mocking him with his supposed own words. Then it says that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, amongst themselves, by the way, began to mock Jesus. I just want to kind of walk through this a little bit. Um, he, he, first of all, so you're going to destroy the temple three days. Look at, look at what the accusation is from the other people. 
come down and save yourself. Save yourself. That's their big accusation against Jesus. He, he, he can't even save himself. If you're going to claim you have the power of God in you, you're going to at least save yourself, right? That's going to be the very first thing you do is save yourself, aren't you? Chief priests and teacher of the law kind of pick up where they leave off. And it says, but I love it. You want to see what it says? That they were talking amongst themselves, and they were saying, uh, look at, I just can't believe what's in the text. Look at what the word says. So he saved others. Do you see the confession of the chief priests and teachers of the law? He saved others, but he can't save himself. Now they're making fun of him, right? But there's this identification. He's a savior. He saved others, but he, he can save himself. And then look at what they say, their request. Now the first request is, let him save himself. That's a passage by. Let him save himself. The second, let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross. Why? So that we can see and believe. The chief priests and teacher of law, their concern is with themselves. If you are who you say you are, if you're the Messiah, we've, we've ridiculed you, we've mocked you, we've turned you over to Pilate, you've been put on a cross, you're about to die. If you are who you say you are, come down from that cross so that we can see and believe ourselves that you're a Messiah. What, what is the implication? That no Messiah of God, no king after the throne of David is going to die on a cross. No way. Not their king. This isn't what was promised to us. If you are who you say you are, come down from that cross so we can believe you. And all the while, Jesus hangs, dying. The third are those who were crucified with him. It says in the beginning of the text there that they are thieves, they are robbers. They could be insurrectionists. They could have been Barabbas' friends sitting next to Jesus, looking at the cross where Barabbas should be hanging, by the way. And they get caught up. What? In heaping insults on Jesus. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Listen, if you're, you know, I mean, no matter what you think about this, you're cheering for the wrong team. If you're hanging on a cross next to someone else being crucified, and you mock the one being crucified with you? So you have passers-by who are not guilty of anything, making fun of Jesus. You have the, the chief priests, right, who are saying, come down and prove who you are so that we can believe you. And then you have people who are dying with Jesus, making fun of Jesus while he dies. They get so caught up in this. That seems crazy to me. That seems absolutely crazy to me. You might even say, well, that's not possible. Listen, as men, and I mean humanity, not letting women off the hook, we are depraved. We're depraved. And even in a situation where we are paying a price for what we rightfully did, they were thieves and robbers, we will find our, a way to make ourselves feel better by making fun of someone else who is just as bad as we are. You're worse than I am. Uh, one of the other Gospels, you would know if you read some Bible, one of the other Gospels says that one of the thieves stopped and, and, and said, Jesus, remember me. <laughs> have mercy on me. But here we have them both heaping insults on Jesus. The ninth hour. We fast forward, now we jump ahead, a time jump, to verse 33, the sixth hour. This is now three hours later, about noon. Jesus has been 
enduring, and by the way, don't miss it, it's two or three sentences in the Bible, but it's hours and hours of suffering for Jesus in this gotta be stinky, terrible place called Golgotha, while he bleeds out on a cross, and he's sitting there, and, and, and this is now three hours later, it says, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's now three in the afternoon. So these first three hours of people mocking and ridiculing and people making fun, even the people who've been crucified with Jesus, making fun of Jesus, everyone despising him and hating him, even if you would say for good reason because they thought he was Messiah and he's not Messiah. They, they, they've, they've had it with Jesus. And at noon, the word says that darkness comes over the whole land until the ninth hour. I want to read this section and we're going to talk about it. At the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then some standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling to Elijah. And one man ran and he filled a sponge with wine vinegar and he put it on a stick and he offered it to Jesus to drink. And he said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. In verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So that's what, six hours? Nine in the morning. Three hours of being mocked and ridiculed. Three hours of darkness over the land. And then this moment where Jesus begins to cry out in anguish to the Father. Dale mentioned this morning already a little bit about this idea of, of uh, the sun, the moon, and what they're doing. But you know, to, tomorrow, right? Is it tomorrow? I mean, there's this crazy thing where people are going to go out and stare up into the sky. And, and one of the things that, they, that everyone's seeking after, the reason that they said this is going to be one of the largest migrations in, in uh, human history that's not caused by a calamity, a disaster, um, because people are trying to get into the totality is what it's called, right? You've seen it. You've seen it. We're overeducated. It's that strip of land that goes throughout the earth as the eclipse makes its way around the globe. And people of all nations are going to run together to stand and have a few moments or seconds of, of darkness. I watched some dude on YouTube talking about all the crazy things you can see. Watch for this. Watch for that. Look for these. It's once in a lifetime. Look at the ground. Look at the shadows. Look at the people. Because you don't have much time. As I was reflecting on that since. I, I remember the last time this happened, by the way. I'm, I'm old, Right? Who, who wasn't born when this happened the last time? 79? Who wasn't born in 79? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember it. And, and all I remember, it, it was creepy. It was weird. I remember everybody screaming, don't look up. We didn't have like dollar things. We built boxes. Dan and I were talking about this last night. We built boxes and we looked at it and it didn't work. And then, don't look at the sun. But all I remember about it is it was weird and it was over. I was that young. I want to think about that. Because another gospel says the sun stopped giving its light. At the twelfth hour, the sun stopped giving its light. I want you to think about what begins to happen to people when it's not for a minute, 30 seconds, or two minutes and 33 seconds, but for three hours. See, for a minute, it's a novelty. I mean, for a few seconds, you're like, oh, this is cool. We can control it. Okay, we see what's happening. We see the sun. Whenever the sun stops shining for three hours over the entirety of the land, that's plenty of time to start freaking out. I was watching a report, they were saying that even in the three minutes, the, the temperatures begin to drop and begin to get cooler. You, what you know is familiar becomes unfamiliar. The place that was immediately before in daylight is now in darkness, and everything begins to change. The, the landscape begins to change. People begin to kind of freak out. Some people get excited, like, oh, this is great. Some people are like, oh, my God, I don't like it, you know? They said that the animals begin to act weird. 
crickets begin to sing, I think it's the middle of the night. And I don't know what kind of madness we're expecting. But know this, in this moment, isn't it interesting that we spend three hours of mocking ridicule and now three hours of darkness over the land? As it sets in, it must have been a terrifying experience. I wonder if the mockers were mocking any longer. I wonder if people were saying anything. I wonder if they began to become much less certain of their position before God. And they're standing there and the darkness is over the land for an hour and then two hours and three hours. What they begin to think about what's happening. I, I would, by the way, venture a guess they thought it had nothing to do with the cross. They would not necessarily believe that would be connected at all. The gospel writers believe it was connected completely. By the way, there's been some people do some studies, because you wonder now, right? Like, oh, this is convenient. Maybe it was a solar eclipse. <laughs> Maybe it was getting darker, getting darker, darker. Now it's dark, and now it's getting lighter, getting lighter. Like, ours is, you know, over. But there's no proof that that's the case. They've, they've been a bunch of really smart nerds that looked into it, and they don't think that that's the case. You know? I love nerds, by the way. I'm not making fun of nerds when I say that. They're smarter than me, so praise God for them. Um, but you have three hours of darkness over the land. What does that mean? What does that mean? Look, we're going to come back to that maybe in a minute. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, cried out in a loud voice. Now, you heard him cry out before. Remember, he's cried out whenever he's healed people. He's, he's cried out. But he, he has this guttural scream, and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is interesting because they don't even bother to translate it in the Greek. It's just exactly what you read here. It's exactly what it says. It's Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And then they translate it for you in the translation, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This confuses some people. Some people begin to think, oh, he's calling Elijah. And I know we've covered this before just recently at Easter. So, but I want to say uh, again, it's worth saying, right, that some people begin to think, oh, he's talking to a prophet. He's calling for the help of the ancestors. He's calling for someone of the faith. Because Eloi, Eloi sounds like Eli, Eli. And they think he's calling for Elijah. But the word properly understood means my God, my God, not Eli, Eli. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about what they're saying there when they say, he's calling to Eli. Eli, uh, why have you forsaken me? What does that even mean? So they're confused. Where it says, look, they, they listen. He, he's calling to Elijah, they said. But in the moment, Jesus is crying out. Now, some of you are biblical scholars. You'll say, well, and you remember from last week, you'll say, well, I know Psalm 22 starts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the psalm. And I've heard some very smart people say very coolly and aseptically, this is Jesus saying, go read Psalm 22. It's about me. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's probably true, right? He knows scripture. He's known it since he was a boy. He was in the temple mesmerizing the teachers of the law when he was 12 years old. He knows what the Bible says. So when he's hanging there in that moment, but do you think, do you think this is only for Jesus a teachable moment? Okay, it's time. Eli, Eli, Labak Sabakthani. You know what I mean? Is that what he's doing? Okay, I hope they got that one. Or do you think that this very son of God, this Messiah, who's been mocked and ridiculed, who has done nothing but good for the people, 
who's been betrayed, who had sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, if there's any other way that this could pass, let it pass, but not what I want, but what you want. If you think that maybe in that moment he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And means every word of it. Not as a Sunday school lesson to go back and read your Bibles, but this sucks. I've been here since the beginning. I've never known any separation from you. See, it becomes cheap words when we over-intellectualize it. Because Jesus is dying on a cross. The darkness. People say, that's judgment over the land. They stand rightly condemned. You, you have crucified the very Son of God, the Messiah, you chief priest and teacher of the law. You liars, you have, you have done it. And God is judging you. You say, yeah. But that darkness was over Jesus too. That darkness was over God's only Son. Because God himself is laying the judgment of the world upon him. Jesus is being judged. And he's never known it. Listen. Who can bear it? Who can bear it? You, you might say, you know what though, Bill? There's that thief on the right and the thief on the left. And they're not crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? Like, wh what, what's, men die all the time. What's the big deal? Death is no big deal. People die. The judgment of God, big deal. Do you hear me? The Bible says don't worry about the first death because everyone's going to die. Worry about the second death. The one is forever. In this moment, God is passing judgment. Do you remember the story of the Israelites coming out of Exodus from Israel? God passed over the land, right? I mean, this is what's happening here. God is judging. And whenever the Passover happens, by the way, it's not about, you know, it's, it's only a good celebration because God's sparing us in the Passover, right? Like everyone's dying when God passes over. And here you have Jesus hanging on the cross. He says these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is about Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22 if you've not read it. We read it last week. I mean, it's so powerful. All the things in there that point right to this moment with Jesus. Completely fulfilling what the psalmist wrote. Completely fulfilling this understanding of what it means to be in the throne of David, to be ruling over Israel, to indeed, listen, be king of the Jews, the first. In this moment of absolute, I'm just convinced anguish, man, and that we should not back off from that. This absolute anguish, Jesus cries out. By the way, let me just ask this question. If you're going to build like a world-dominating religion, are you going to have the world religious leader lament God's abandonment in a moment of need? Like, I think about that because I was an atheist for a long time, you know, and if I was going to make up a faith, I would not make up one where the, the key person at the key moment begins to lament the absence of the one that we're all supposed to believe in. I just wouldn't do that. Neither would the chief priests or the teachers of the law. This is not a Messiah they know. But in that moment, it's true and it's real and it's what God is doing. It's what God is doing between him and Jesus in that moment that brings forth this cry. And some hear it and, and, they, and they run. They say, he's calling Elijah. And the guy runs and he puts a sponge with wine vinegar on it, which is like a, a bitter wine, a sour wine, and he offers it to Jesus. 
to drink. And he says, let's let him hang there now. Let's see if Elijah comes. Look at the word again, to take him down. They're still thinking maybe something's going to happen, you know. But the next thing is, one, look at that. Look at your Bible, man. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Six hours. Not counting the overnight beating he got, but six hours on the cross. And Jesus is dead. Now we're going to go to the third, starting um, in that very next verse. 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion, who had stood in front of Jesus the entire time, heard his cry and saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. Forty, some women were watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joan, uh, Joseph, uh, that's probably not right, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs, and many other women who had come up with them to Jerusalem were also there with him. What we have is witnesses. Three distinct witnesses to the death of Christ. That happened like, like really quickly here. And the first one we want to talk about for a minute, and it's this idea of the temple veil being torn open, right? You remember that when Jesus went into um, Jerusalem, he would go into the, the courts and he was flipping over tables. He was saying, my house should be a house of prayer. You know, this is what it's about. The way we, we've turned to a systematic way to exchange rates and, and selling and trading animals and stuff. This is not what it's about. It's about the, the demand for a blood sacrifice. Don't miss that. A little bit of history on the temple veil. Um, if, if you remember your Bible history here, there was one priest. He was the chief priest, the foremost priest that was allowed to go in once a year to offer sacrifices for Israel. Once a year, that was it. No one else was allowed to go in there to the Holy of Holies. That was the centermost, innermost sanctuary. Then you had the courts outside that. Then you had the other courts around it. This is like this kind of concentric circles, but this is like the high holiest place that you only went into once a year. Like you weren't allowed to go in there otherwise. It would be your life if you did. You would, you would be struck dead if you went in there outside of the parameters that God laid out for you. I want to take note of the fact that in the moment, Jesus is on Golgotha dying. And in the moment, the temple isn't right there, right? Like we read it and it's like it's right there. Like here's Jesus on the cross. There's the temple thing. It rips open, you know. But it's removed by proximity a little bit from where Golgotha is. I say all to say there's nothing that was expected no one could have seen it coming. I want you to think about the reality for those who were in the temple that moment, not even worrying about what's happening out on Golgotha. Not even attentive to what's happening at Golgotha. When they begin to see this holy of holies, this place where you are not allowed to go in lest you die, be rent open and torn open. Some people have studied the temple, the veil, and the size and scale of it, and um, all we know for sure it was beautiful, right? There's some uh, historians who said it was a pretty thick, about the thick of a palm width. Think about that. And it was made in squares. It had to be kind of carried around together. They couldn't even move the whole thing. It was so huge. Someone has estimated about 60 feet from top to bottom, covering just the doors of the Holy of Holies. And this thing was rent uh, in two. I want to share with you a, a quote I found that, um, let's see if I can pull it up here. Yeah, this is actually from, uh, I think it's Josephus. And this is, I, feel, I love it because it, it gives you an idea of the scale and magnitude of what's happening and why it would be a big deal. Even just because of it being a veil is a big deal. It says, before the doors, there was a veil of equal largeness with the doors. It was a Babylonian curtain embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple and of a contexture that was truly wonderful. 
nor was the mixture of colors without its own mystical interpretation. It's a beautiful veil. It's a beautiful item. But it was a kind of an image of the universe. For by the scarlet there seemed to be enigmatically signified fire. The fine flax signified the earth. The blue, the air of the earth. And the purple, the sea. And two of them having... Uh, their colors, the foundation, this resemblance, but the fine flax and the purple have their own origin for that foundation. The earth producing the one and the sea producing the other color. The curtain also had embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens, excepting that it was of the 12 signs representing the 12 creatures. So this is just no ordinary. You think about, I was thinking about curtains. I'm like, oh, we got this curtain here, this red curtain that we pull open. You know, this was just no ordinary curtain. It was like some beautiful spectacle to behold and there's someone there at this moment that sees this curtain ripped in half after you know all this time it just must have been mind-blowing it's worth pointing out that when the curtain was torn it was torn from the top to the bottom it's super subtle in there right but the thing rips from the top down not from the bottom up it's not like it's a mystery like well i don't know how it happened like something tore the temple open from the top to the bottom. It was different. And I know, listen, I know as Protestants we love that image because we say, man, and if you read in Hebrews it says, you know, Jesus' body is the veil that allows us entry into this tabernacle now. Like that's what happened, you know, in the moment whenever it was cleaved in half, that that always separated God from men. That was the idea that you weren't allowed to go in there because you were ordinary. You can't go in there. But now that this temple curtain is torn in half, you and I can go in there like ordinary men and God just accepts us. He's like, yeah, come on and hang out with me, right? That's why we want to read that. Fair enough. Historically, historically, eventually true. When we get to the writer of Hebrews and he says, do you know that Jesus is the divine temple? He is the ta- he's the veil. His flesh is the veil that we enter through to get to the divine tabernacle of the Lord, the real tabernacle. Fair enough. But what about in this moment? In this moment when Jesus has taken the judgment of the world upon himself, do you think that this is God saying, and now the doors are open, come to me? Yeah, maybe. I think it's much more like uh, Elvis has left the building. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with the sacrifice. I'm abandoning you. See, the Holy of Holies was a place to be feared, for sure. But it was a place to prove that they had God on their side. If you don't think God's on our side, just look at the Holy of Holies. He's clearly with us. And the temple curtain was torn top to bottom. God was done with temple worship. All oh, the days before when Jesus flipped the tables over to pray. In my house, the house of prayer. He made a den of robbers. God's going to judge that. It was the judgment of God. Listen, tore it open, destroyed temple worship in a moment, in a moment. And we have this idea. Now, the things do become true. It is true that we enter through Christ's body. That is true. He is the new veil. But you understand in this moment in time, all we have is judgment. We have God judging the nations. We have God judging Jesus for the sins of the nations. And nothing, nothing will listen, satisfy, and nothing needs to satisfy. Do you see? Why have a holy of holies and a temple for sacrifice when sacrifice has been made? 
It was on his death that we have this first witness of the curtain in the temple being torn from the top to bottom. By the way, ripped completely in half. 29. When a centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, he was standing opposite Jesus the entire time he's on the cross, right? Saw, what does it say? Uh, heard Jesus' cry and saw how Jesus died. He said, surely this man is, was son of God. What's this? Centurion, easy to remember, century, 100 years, centurion, 100 soldiers. This guy had a command of a force. This wasn't like the low man on a totem pole, some, you know, muckety-muck. No, he had responsibilities. He had authority. And he's watching. He's witnessing Jesus die. He's making sure, you'll find out in a minute, he's making sure that Jesus dies for the sake of the state. He has a job to do. So he's not only like a passive observer, he's not a curious onlooker. He's someone whose task it is to watch Jesus die. And the word says that whenever he, he heard the cry of Jesus, when he saw the way he died, he confessed. Surely this man, look at what the word says, surely this man was the son of God. What does the centurion know about the son of God? What does the centurion know about temple worship or Israel? What does he know about Messiah? In the witnessing, in the moment, he just recognizes it. After all the drama, the ridicule, the insults, everything has happened. The darkness, and then he's like, this is surely the guy. What must he have thought about what had been done? Listen. What must he have thought about what he was involved with? Surely this man was the son of God. I heard a story this week about um, someone who was, uh, you know, everyone videos everything these days. And I heard a story this week about someone who was videoing a friend, just kind of videoing a situation, thought it was kind of interesting, cool, or whatever, and his friend died while he watched. He died. And he said, I can't even watch it. Because if I had known in that moment what was happening, I would have done something else. But I only watched. What is the centurion wondering now? Having seen what he saw. Surely this man was the son of God. And, and by the way, it could be fair to say, surely, translated, surely this man was a son of God. I mean, he just knew he wasn't ordinary. No ordinary man, no ordinary Jew, but different. The third witness, look at it, verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. There they are. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph. Uh, I'm going to say that like one every time. I don't know what it is. Salome. In Galilee, women had followed Jesus. There's a testament about them. And they cared for his need in Galilee. And then many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Remember, Jesus was going back and forth every day into the temple courts. And here these women are at a distance and they're witnessing all these things happen. They're watching um, the, 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 the story unfold before their eyes. And they become the witnesses of Jesus' um, death on the cross. Uh, you know, there's much you can make of this, right? The fact that you're gonna, we're going to read when, when we get to the very end here today that they, they follow him to find out where he's buried. Um, they're the first ones up on, on resurrection day to go to the tomb to see what's happening, right? I mean, they're the caregivers. They're with Jesus. Um, I, honestly, I, I have a hard time speaking this because I'm a guy. I, 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 I much more feel Peter, <laughs> you know? I, I much more, more feel the, the naked guy who ran away, and, <laughs> you know, because he was terrified. <laughs> 
Then someone is willing to watch from a distance and go, wait, wait, wait. Let's see what happens. These women have been faithful and they got to witness the death of Jesus from afar. They got to see him breathe his last. So now we're going to... So you have three witnesses, right? Temple veil, the centurion, which is a, a civil uh, witness, and then these women um, who were watching Jesus as well. Verse 42, it was preparation day, that is the day before Sabbath. And so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, by the way, don't let the translation screw you up here. It's the same Sanhedrin that was judging Jesus, who was himself uh, waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. He thought six hours wouldn't be enough time. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, see that was his job to do, he then agreed and gave the body to Joseph. And so Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body of Jesus, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Hosus, that's just going to get me every time today, saw where he was laid. So you have the, the final resting place of Jesus Christ. You have this moment of, of boldness from uh, Joseph. And it does say he was bold in asking Pilate for the body. Um, just real quick, uh, just so you know, we talked about it before, but the way Jewish Sabbath works is the days are evening to evening right? Um, so sunset to sunset is how Sabbath works. So on Friday, Sabbath would start at sunset on Friday, and you would celebrate Sabbath where you do no work until sunset on Saturday, right? And then at sunset on Saturday, you can do whatever you want again. That's how that works. That's how the Sabbath calendar works. The day of rest is demanded of the Lord. And so they were coming up on this deadline, Jesus having already died, and they would not be able to work for another day. So they knew if we left him on the cross, we can't, he's going to hang there for another day before we can do any work or it's a violation of the law that's what's happening here and so they go boldly in this moment of kind of conflict and they say can we take his body down look at what it said Pilate is surprised he's already dead he's shocked man we don't even have time to unpack this but I said to you before he, he ordered that Jesus be flogged but we don't know that Pilate witnessed Jesus's abuse right we know that by the time Jesus left that the place of judgment and entered the streets, he couldn't carry a cross anymore, that the soldiers demanded that Simon carry the cross. But, but Pilate seems surprised that Jesus would die so quickly. And this when the centurion says, no, he definitely died. I saw it. I saw it myself. And so those who are faithful to Jesus, look at what it says. Um, uh, Joseph is awaiting the kingdom of God. And he takes Jesus' body and he buries it. He buries the body in a tomb and puts the rock over the tomb. There's another dude there, by the way. Nicodemus is there with uh, him as well. Brought spices. Another gospel, but it brought spices to, to prepare the body for burial. So, that, so that's the deal, right? All this drama. All this stuff going on. And now Jesus is in the tomb. And, and, and that could be that. That could be the end of it. See, here's the funny thing, and we're, we're going to stop there today, but here's the funny thing. I told you this is more difficult to preach because of its profound nature, right? But here's what's funny. Always we want to apply Scripture, you know? We want to see what the Bible says, and then how can we change our lives because of what the Bible says, right? And what I've begun to realize, of course, as I've studied this more deeply is 
there's nothing we can apply from this text except the knowledge of what God has done for us. Like, this isn't like a top three tips for parenting. This isn't a top three ways to be a better Christian. This isn't, this is a profound reflection on the reality of what God did. This has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our worth or our value or our ability. It's about what God has already done. If you can reflect on that with me, and if you can think deeply on that, all of a sudden, Scripture becomes clearer whenever Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in our culture, we want to go, yeah, except that one other way. But if you understand what happened on the cross of Jesus, you would get, there's no other way. Because if there's any other way, that was all for nothing. Well, there was all for only some people. It was all for only, you know. But the reality is that, that this reality sets in that there's no other way but the cross of Christ. There's no other veil that was torn from top to bottom because you have to come through Jesus. You have to. This is not about what we can do with God, but what God did without us. Go back to the first question. Who would you die for? Do you remember the question Jesus asked on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who would you die for? truth is that Jesus died for us. In his calculation, he gave his life that we might be free. Oh, not just you, but anyone who would believe. Not just your good friends, not just the good people of history, not just the, but anyone who would believe he saves. Jesus died to save us, sinners though we are. I want to pray. And as we pray, we're going to enter into a time of uh, reflection and communion. Uh, one thing that is interesting is God is always at work when we don't recognize it. And so let's, let's pray and we'll talk about that. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of who you are and for the profound reality of what you did on a cross that you would send your son to die for people like us for people who do not deserve your mercy or grace certainly not your salvation father we give you thanks and praise because you've done in jesus what we could never do ourselves we, we thank you so much for the reality that if we paid every bit we would be out so long before we could pay you for what we've done and you have taken it all upon yourself. Every sin, listen, every hurt, every hardship, every burden, every fear, every anxiety, every brokenness, you have claimed it on the cross. We give you thanks and praise for the profound work of Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would believe all the more the magnitude of the cross, that we would see all the more the glory beheld there that you will be made famous, that your name will be made famous because you are the way, the truth, and the life. We love you so much and we thank you for the chance that we have just to worship you today. We pray that in our hearts and our souls and in the, the quiet, dark places of our lives, your Holy Spirit is just bringing light and life. Pray that we be renewed in you. You're worthy of worship. Cause us to worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.